You're listening to The Gold Standard, episode 34, Gould's Glorious Goldbergs, with Tim Page and Richard Einhorn. Everybody, I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to the Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. And we're here once again, bringing you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If film, music, novels, poetry, theater, and design are the source of your inner joy, then you have come to the right place, my friends. But first, while you're stopping by under our flickering neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you happen to be listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. While you're at it, be sure to check out our past episodes featuring luminaries from all across the world of the arts. Now, to get more Simply Sumptuous sounds, winsome words, and invigorating images, we'd love you to pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. And when you're there... If you're seized with an irresistible urge, an impulse that simply cannot be denied to click that donate button, then please do give way to the urge and support the work of the Glenn Gould Foundation. We are a Canadian registered charity, and we rely on the generous support of donors like you. Now, today we are continuing our coverage of Glenn Gould at 90. This is the 90th birth anniversary year of Glenn Gould, and we have a very, very special episode because our friends at Sony Classical are going to be reissuing or releasing, actually, for the first time, the complete recorded takes from Glenn Gould's historic 1981 reinterpretation of the Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach. And joining us to talk about that project as a jumping-off point are two people who knew him and worked with him. Tim Page is the Pulitzer Prize-winning music critic. He has written for the New York Times and the Washington Post, among others. He was a good friend of Glenn Gould, interviewed him several times, including a feature interview about his reinterpretation of the Goldberg Variations, and posthumously was the editor of the Glenn Gould Reader. And he is a good friend of the Glenn Gould Foundation to boot. Also, we are being joined by a very distinguished composer, Richard Einhorn. Some of you may be familiar with his oratorio called Voices of Light, which was written to accompany the silent film masterpiece, The Passion of Joan of Arc, by the Danish director, Carl Theodor Dreyer. Uh, If you don't know it, you should check it out. It's absolutely wonderful. And he is also a prolific composer on subjects as diverse as The Voyages of Charles Darwin and the writer of many uh, memorable film scores. 
But at one time, he was a producer at Columbia Records and was called upon to pinch hit as producer for the 1981 Goldberg Variations. So we're going to have a conversation about that experience, about Glenn Gould and his personality and character and his artistic sensibility. And I couldn't be more delighted to welcome our guests, Richard Einhorn and Tim Page. Welcome. It's such a pleasure. It's a joy. Well, we are here because, well, for two or three reasons. But one is, this year is Glenn Gould's 90th birth anniversary. We like to say birthday. And it's also the year that um, the good folks at Sony Classical are going to be doing a spectacular reissue of the 1981 recording of the Goldberg Variations by Glenn Gould. In this case, it will be the entire session material that went into that recording so that you'll have a chance, if you at home who are interested, uh, to hear the creative process that went into building that recording from the raw takes and how Glenn interacted with the production team and so on. And I feel especially fortunate because, of course, we have you, Tim, who are a good friend of Glenn's. And Richard, you, in addition to being a very distinguished composer, were at the time a producer for Columbia Records, CBS Records. And you ended up being pinch-hitting producer for part of that session, I guess is would be right to say. First of all, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, sure. Basically, um, I was, um, at the time, this was 1981, obviously, I was a record producer for, uh, for what was then CBS Masterworks. And, um, I was working with all sorts of artists. There had been some talk about um, my working with Glenn um, earlier, but the, the, it just didn't work out that way. And Sam Carter was assigned to be his producer. And Sam, of course, was a, was a wonderful producer. So, um, one day, um, I was between uh, a couple of projects and I was basically hanging around the office and somebody rushed into my, my own office and said, we've got a problem, Richard. Um, Sam Carter is sick. He's re-recording the Goldberg variations with Glenn Gould and he needs a pinch in producer there. Don't worry. It's also a video, um, shoot and the, the video producer is very musically knowledgeable. Would you mind going down there and filling in, um, for a little bit? And, you know, as I wrote in my notes, if ever there was a question that answered itself, this was a question <laughs> that didn't really need an answer. The only question was, you know, when, now, and, I was out, I was literally going to go out the door and, but Sam was on the phone. So, um, I took a phone call from Sam and he filled me in on some details and then off I went. Let's circle back to that experience in the studio in a moment. But I want to say, Tim, when did you first meet Glenn? It was not that, that much earlier than, than about this time in, in his, in his career, right? Well, you know, something that is interesting was I was talking to Glenn, so I sort of, in his way of thinking of things, I met him in October of 1980, but we didn't actually meet in person until just a little bit over a month before he died when we made that recording talking about um, the Goldberg Variations. So... I, I really met him in August of 1982 in person. And then we worked on that recording. And then I went back and I remember talking to him on his 50th birthday. And of course, two days later, he had his stroke. So yes, that's 
that's a long answer. Well, it's a it's a very interesting answer uh, because I have to imagine that he discussed his plans to re-record the Goldbergs with you, since you were you know kind of in in ongoing contact at that time. What uh, what what went into his decision? Well, we'd been talking about his possible revisit of the Goldbergs for a while, and then he told me he was doing it. And then I remember once the film was made, I went to a studio. Richard, you might have been there where we we had a showing. Susan Kosas was showing it, and all of us gathered in a room, and we watched it on TV. And I remember hearing his voice and saying, Hey, that's my friend, but I'd still never met him. Um, so yeah, we talked about it for a long time and then we talked about it more seriously right before it came out because he decided he wanted to do this strange little interview we did. So he took a whole lot of notes on what I thought of the new recording and what I thought of the old recording. And then he actually went and he wrote a play in which Tim Page would play Tim Page saying almost entirely things that Tim Page would have said. I I can't claim any credit for some of the little jokes he threw there in the middle. Um, But uh, it was a really interesting way to meet him. And I very much enjoyed the two or three days I spent with him almost nonstop in Toronto, only about a month before he died, almost exactly 40 years ago as we are speaking. Exactly right. We are in that anniversary period. Um, okay, so we jump back a little bit before the recording session. I'm going to jump back a little further still and um, ask each of you, when did you first become aware of Glenn Gould? What was your first listening experience? And given that I imagine at the time he was not the quote unquote legend that he was now, but simply, you know, one of the current artists, you know, recording piano repertoire. You know, what was your impression and how did he strike you when you first became aware of him and heard him, heard his playing? Richard, you want to start? Sure. Sure. Um, I can remember, I can actually visualize when I first uh, heard about him. I was in a, in a composition class um, with Walter May, who was my first composition teacher. And I was sitting in class and he, we suddenly, I think we were, must have been talking about recording or something like that. And he said to us, um, has anybody heard of the pianist uh, Glenn Gould? And we all shook our heads. And he said, well, this is a pianist, a, a great, great pianist, very eccentric, but he gave up live performance so that he could do nothing but record. And he told us a little bit more about him. And the next day I went to the record store or the day after that, and I bought one of his records. And that's how I first heard about him. And I was absolutely and utterly astonished um, because the playing was something that I'd never heard before, that this kind of clarity of playing of Bach's music that just simply was quite remarkable, the kind of touch that he had, his ability to shape phrases within this very staccato touch, which was really quite remarkable. I just fell in love with his playing. Um, of course, I adored all his quirks. You know, I was maybe 17, 18 at the time. So all of that mattered a great deal. But really, it was the playing that struck me. I, I just was flabbergasted by it. 
Well, I have three Glenn Gould moments. <laughs> the, the first was there was an article about him in some popular magazine, Life or Time or something like that. And my father would share things that he thought were interesting with me. And he told me a little bit about him. And I remember vaguely reading it, but really not hearing him yet, but already thinking, wow, he's just strange, interesting guy. So I'd say that my second Gould epiphany was I went to see the only Hollywood film he ever wrote score for or put together a score for, and that was Slaughterhouse Five, which this was when I was maybe 17 or 18. It's a very good film. Glenn didn't like it at all, but it holds up quite wonderfully. I saw it recently and his work holds up well. The whole film holds up well. It's a staggeringly brilliant way of taking what you would think was an unfilmable book and turning it into very good film indeed. And so after that, I went out and I was fascinated and I bought a record of Slaughterhouse-Five and listened to that. And then finally, my mom bought me as a present the Glenn Gould Beethoven Fifth record because I guess she thought that was something that would make me interested. And of course, that came with the long interview with John McClure. And so by that point, I was utterly fascinated. I thought this guy was phenomenally cool, interesting, full of ideas about music. And then it actually came from CBS. Susan Kosas asked me if I would like to do a, a over-the-phone interview, a print interview with with Glenn. And we hit it off perfectly. And from then on, we were on the phone maybe, I don't know, once, twice a week, often for two or three hours. And, you know, the first time, and I still have that, you know, I'm surprised no one's ever wanted to bring it out, but I have uh, the interview that we did that evening. Um, it was it was just sort of fascinating. And uh, it turned out he loved the interview when it was finally printed. But I, you know, I never felt it was right to tape a friend when a friend called. And now I'm kicking myself and saying I'd have 30 hours, 40 hours of Glenn Gould conversation. But of course, that's not the sort of thing you do to a friend. Right. Well, if you ever feel like, you know, it's time for that to become part of the public record, we're here and we'd be happy to. You let me know. I've got it. Uh, we want it, and we will. We will definitely uh, have that conversation after this. Um, okay. <laughs> I have a I have a funny story to share with you about about Glenn, and this was given to me by Gary Grafman when he was uh, a juror for the uh, for the Glenn Gould Prize, and he said, "I don't know if you know this, but I attended his New York debut at Town Hall," and I said. Really, really, because I've never met anyone who had attended that concert back in 1955. He said, oh, yes, yes. So here's how it happened. I got a call from Mrs. Leventritt, uh, and I'd been one of the winners of the Leventritt competition. I don't think it still survives, but it was a very, very distinguished American competition. And she said, I have a call from a friend of mine in Toronto, Harvey Olnick, he was actually a music professor at the University of Toronto. I studied with him. And he said, there's a, a young pianist who's going to be giving his debut at Town Hall uh, the next weekend. And, you know, I have to tell you, 
in all my years, I've never heard anything like it. He's truly brilliant, but no one knows him, and it's going to be empty. Can you get people to attend? So Mrs. Leventritt was apparently a force of nature, and she said, no problem, Harvey. I'm on it. So she called everyone that she knew, including the winners of the competition. And, you know, and as Gary said, you didn't say no to Mrs. Leventritt because not only was she formidable, but also there would be a reception afterwards at her beautiful apartment with a tremendous spread. So <laughs> she said, you know, like, get all your friends. So he called up his buddy Leon Fleischer and they went and they attended. And, you know, as Gary said, we were floored. We'd never heard anything like it. So afterwards at the reception of Mrs. Leventritt's, there was Glenn standing in a corner, not talking to anyone and looking pretty forlorn about being in a that kind of a, an environment. So Gary went to Leon and they basically said, let's make him feel at home. So they walked up to him and, you know, stuck their hands out and said, hello, Mr. Gould, that was really wonderful. I'm Gary Grafman and I'm Leon Fleischer. And Gould stared at them balefully and he said, I know you, you play Chopin. so apparently even back then he was the the ghoul that we know to this day and even then disapproved of chopin um anyway it's really fascinating to to think about how he's become such a a larger than life figure and and honestly you know i speak with people all the time for whom he is an almost mythical artist who has touched their lives in a very, very deep and profound way. And, you know, having spent my life in and around this kind of music, I would say, you know, there are a very, very small number of artists, as much as we may love and be impressed by them, you know, there are like Maria Callas for some, you know, Horowitz for others. But Gould is really one of the very, very few but you knew him more as a working artist, um, working on a project, Richard, and as a friend, Tim. Did you feel that sense of duality when you interacted with him? Well, I liked him enormously. We just felt that, you know, we were old, lost brothers who found each other. I have some theories as to why this might have been, but we would just talk each other's heads off and we we get very excited. We get we we'd become like 10-year-old boys, except instead of talking about model airplanes, we were talking about late Ricard Strauss or contrapuntal radio or something like that. So we hit it off just, you know, like a house of fire. And I was very anxious when I sat down to talk with them, but it soon became clear that we were on a whole lot of different wavelengths. And from then on, it was easy. You know, I, I'm not that easily cowed by famous people. And I usually, unless I'm doing a specific interview or something like that, I don't actually go out of my way to meet that many people either. You know, I have a good amount of friends and I like them, but it's, it's not something. I mean, I, I've had a number of occasions where I could have met some people whose work I admire enormously, but I didn't have an assignment. There was no reason to go there. So I didn't. But with Glenn, it was just, it was just a blast, you know, just talking about everything, laughing our heads off. I will say one thing that I noticed. The moment we started working after a day or two of just talking about this, you know, Goldberg Variations recording we're going to make, once he started working, 
the joking, laughing, informal Glenn was gone for the duration. It was all hard work. If you tried to put in sort of a funny line that came to you as you were starting to work on this, he would sort of shake his head and want to go on and finish the project. It was it was not the time for play, if that makes any sense. He was very, very motivated, determined, and you know, you, you knew very soon after you'd started to say something sort of silly or off the subject that that was not what you were there to do. However, as soon as it was over, it was all back to yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would I would have to second uh, Tim's observation uh, when he was in the studio. When, when the engineers were trying to either fix some technical problem or just setting things up, he was a joy. I mean, an absolute joy, hilariously funny. Um, like with, like with, um, what Tim said, he had this ability to kind of like, bring you up to his level. You felt as smart as him, you know, everything just, it, it was a remarkable thing to be around him. And this mystique around him, it, believe me, I felt it when I was there with him. Um, the moment, the, um, the moment he went out to the piano and he started to record, it was all business. And I, I've listened to some of the, um, the recordings, uh, you know, the compilation that was sent to me of the, um, Goldbergs. And what, you, what we get from there is that focus, is his, his intense sense of focus. But his ability to, to flip between those two was kind of, kind of remarkable. I mean, all artists do it to some extent. We all, we all do this, but most of us mix and match a little bit. You know, we can, we get distracted by a joke and when we're working and we go down that, that rabbit hole and vice versa. Um, with Glenn, there really seemed to be a, a really, really great ability to compartmentalize. And it really made working with him very, very efficient. And I mean, a genuine pleasure. Well, that is a phenomenon that some people call laser focus. And that actually brings me back, Tim, to some of your thoughts about why you and Glenn got along so well together, because um, you wrote a, a wonderful book, Parallel Play, about discovering late in life that you had Asperger's syndrome, and you kind of hypothesized, or at least intuitively felt very strongly that, you know, Glenn was a fellow a experiencer of that of that condition. Do you feel that that laser focus element was one manifestation of it? Oh, oh, to to be sure. I mean, it's no longer called Asperger syndrome, mostly because it turns out that Asperger was a pretty awful human being. <laughs> and adding to these, you know, troubled children that the names of uh, uh, certainly a Nazi and almost a war criminal is not a nice thing to do to kids. And it, it also, I'm actually happy that they now include that in the autistic spectrum. It was strange because, you know, um, the first time I ever saw anything like this was uh, Tim Baloney wrote something like, did Glenn Gould suffer from Asperger's syndrome or autism? And it was also touched on the book that Peter Ostwald was writing very quickly so he could get it done before he died. So I had looked at it a, a little like this, and then I was diagnosed in the year 2000, and I was grateful for the diagnosis. It suddenly explained a whole lot of things about 
how I was able to do some things extremely well and other things I simply couldn't really do at all. So yeah, maybe about a dozen years ago, I wrote a piece which is going to be reprinted in September. I, I used the analogy of the film The Shining. Do you remember how that's that little kid and this lovely old black guy who works at the place and and they have nothing in common ordinarily, but they understand each other immediately. And the older gentleman says, um, we have a shining. And that's the way I felt with Glenn. It was like we had a shining. We could talk about things that utterly fascinated both of us. And we could go on and on about this. I mean, I wrote in parallel play about my early attempts at romance. And I would go up at a dance to, you know, some nice young girl there. And I would say something like, say, did you know that, you know, all these years we've thought that Lillian Gish was born in 1896, but now we think it was 1893. And I'd see her sort of like moving away from me as quickly as she could. But, but the thing about Glenn was we actually would just talk about all this really obscure stuff and it would make both of us very happy. And it was almost like, I mean, not to get too sentimental about it, but it's almost like you've got a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, for a Torontonian, it would have to be Mary Pickford that you would be talking about. But anyway, <laughs> she uh, was also born in 1893. Well, I there. still got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, man. You got it. Well, you know, I've also heard from people who knew Glenn very well, for example, Lauren Talk, who was also very close to, to Glenn, of certain other savant-like qualities, not just in his playing, but also, for example, his memory. And Lauren has told me quite literally, I remember this precisely, that Glenn was always suggesting that he read this book or that book because Glenn was was not only an autodidact in, in many respects, but also a, a prolific reader. And um, Lauren was not a reader at all. But eventually, after a number of years of this, he he had always written down the books that Glenn recommended. So he picked one up and he began reading it. And he actually found to his surprise that he liked it. And when he was about halfway through it, he went to Glenn and said, uh, I'm reading that book, such and such, that you recommended, and I'm really enjoying it. And Glenn said, really, what part are you at? And uh, Lauren said, uh, it's the part where this person did that. And Glenn said, oh, that's the top of page 179. It's a good part of the book. Story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, that definitely sounds like, like uh, a kindred spirit. And, you know, I've also heard from uh, the, uh, the former music critic of the Toronto Star, who actually lived in the same building as Glenn for a while, that Glenn called him up one day and said, I'm, I've been asked to play... I think it might have been the Grieg Concerto, because there was a an occasion when he was supposed to record it with the Cleveland Orchestra, and it came to naught. And that was the occasion that his famous piano CD three eighteen fell off the back of the truck when it was being returned from Cleveland. And uh, he said, "I'd like to try it on your piano. I like your piano." So um, Bill is actually quite a gifted amateur pianist, and uh, this is Bill Littler. Bill Littler, Littler, yes, the music yeah. critic of the Toronto Star. Or he might have said, do you have a copy of the score? That might have been it. So uh, Gould came over, and he opened it up and read it through page, 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 threw the score to one side, or closed the score, played it by heart, 
and then picked up the score and threw it over his shoulder and said, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> he did record that Grieg Sonata, and he also thought that his mother was a distant relative, although they spelled it differently. That is right. And it turns out that they weren't. <laughs> they were not related. Let's let's go back to the to the the Goldbergs, and, and I, I hope you'll forgive me for jumping around a little bit. But oh, uh, not at all. Know, it's um, so Richard, you're in the studio. Um, the recording is part way made. It's an unusual session because it's one of the very earliest digital recordings that I think CBS Masterworks did, and it was actually released as one of the very first ever compact discs. And you've got a uh, a documentary being made by um, the estimable Bruno Monsejean in parallel. That sounds like a pretty complex setup. Uh, can you describe, was there a feeling that just in terms of the procedure and technique of making this recording happen, that it was a little out of the ordinary? Oh yeah. Well, anything connected with Glenn Gould is going to be out of the ordinary. And, 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 uh, because it was Glenn, it was almost always in a positive, positive fashion. In this case, typically a, um, recording session, at least back then for classical was a very, very small and closed affair. In the studio was the pianist, producer, um, an engineer, maybe an assistant en- engineer, and outside the studio, there'd be a piano tuner. That's it. You know, occasionally there might be a, um, a spouse hanging around, but usually not. Usually that was basically it. But this was kind of, you know, I walked into 30th Street Studio, which I knew very well and which was a legendary studio. And I walked into there and I worked there many times and it was just overrun with stuff, you know, with, um, with, um, equipment and video cameras and lights and everything. And sure enough, there was also, um, a, a lot of people, uh, way more people than usual. Glenn was sitting very calmly reading the score to the Goldberg variations in the control room. And basically it was set up in those days. These were the early days of digital and, um, all of us loved the way digital sounded. Um, it sounded exactly as if it hadn't been recorded, like we were listening to microphones coming in to the console. It was absolutely perfect. But none of us could stand the, the actual equipment, any of us who used it, because it was so clunky. It took forever to rewind. Um, you could never find your place because it wasn't precise. Um, all the engineers had developed these really elegant techniques. Somebody like Glenn would say, rewind four and a half bars and zip, you know, they'd be able to do it because they knew how to manipulate the machines. The digital machines were really clunky to use. So we were always running analog backups uh, during digital sessions. So we had multiple machines going on. And then Glenn really um, threw in an extra spanner into the works um, because what he, he had this, and Tim can actually talk to this better than I, but he had this elaborate tempo plan for the re-recording of the Goldbergs, where the incoming variation would be some proportional tempo of the outgoing variation, as I understand it. 
So how was he going to realize this? Um, yes, he had a phenomenal memory, but he really, really wanted it to be perfect. So we had to set up yet another recording machine in addition to the analog machines. And remember, there's two analog machines, two digital machines, a video recorder, a backup probably for the video recorder. And now I think we set up, according to the notes, we, we, we set up a cassette player of all things. And that would be recording everything. And then it would rewind back. We rewind into the, the outgoing variation so that Glenn could get the tempo. He'd play along. We'd start recording and then he'd calculate in his head the new tempo and he'd start playing that. And so all of this was going on at once and it was rather a complicated setup. I think that what's really interesting about it is that, that when Glenn made a point of, of telling everybody how fascinated he was with technology and how involved he was. And this is a perfect example of how he, how he actually used technology to his advantage. The typical things that people think of when they think of technology in the studio is, oh, editing, you know, splicing two takes together. But surprisingly, at least in the scores of Glenn's I've seen, the splicing scores I've seen, and I think also in the, in the Goldbergs, Glenn spliced far less than virtually any other pianist I've ever seen or worked with. Where his innovations was, um, he didn't, the reason he didn't need to, <laughs> he was just on a completely different planet and level. But where his, his technical innovations lay was in coming up with things like this, like rewinding so that he could get the tempos exactly perfect. And all of these things were always in the service of making the art better. And I, I I just wanted to back up a little into the previous conversation. All the quirks that that Glenn had and all his eccentricities, my personal feeling is that all of that in some sense also fed into the art. The the there there is this sense of him being a very strange and unusual person, and there's no question he was, and there's no question that he had some psychopathology on top of being unusual. Um, but almost all of it, I would say, um he was managed to focus on getting his art right in a way that all of us who are artists can just sit there and with our jaws dropped down to the floor, listening to that and thinking, how on earth can I get that kind of focus? How on earth can I leverage all my problems into making my art better? I mean, he was amazing. And um, now, what is it, 50 years later? Um, it, it's still something that, that just flabbergasts me that I had a chance to work with him. Yeah, I I would completely agree with that. I mean, I think I think for a lot of people who are as we say now on the spectrum, a huge amount of whether they have happy, satisfied, relatively normal lives will will be whether they can put that furious concentration into something that A, they love, and B, other people will want them to do. Because if you, and, and I'm not saying this as a put down for people who do these jobs, but if you put Glenn Gould behind a sales counter, or if you made him a taxi driver or something like that, he would have had an unbelievably miserable time of things. But he was lucky and he found something where he could just throw all of his passion and furious concentration into one or two or three things, because he would get interested in other things as well. 
Richard, I want to ask you, since obviously the the original uh, Goldberg Variations album came out in 82, and that was a digital album, but 20 years later, they brought out something called A State of Wonder, which had not only the 1955 recording, but it also had the first release of the 1981 version, but it was the analog tape. Do you have a preference? I mean, not not intellectually, not in the memory of how these things were done, but if you if you want to hear that recording, do you put on the digital version or do you put on the analog release in 2002? That's a great question, uh, Tim. And honestly, I think that... I remember hearing that state of wonder and just loving it so much. Um, I just, I guess I listened to that, but I have to be honest with you and say that, uh, back then my hearing, my hearing is, as, uh, you may know, has, has suffered quite a few blows. Um, but back then my hearing was still pretty good. And, um, my, recollection even during the recording sessions was that the differences between the sound of the digital and the analog tapes was very close to the same. I have a vague memory of Glenn saying in the studio that he preferred the analog recording because it was slightly warmer. And um, I could kind of squint a little bit and sort of hear what he was talking about. But the truth is that the difference is very, very subtle. Um, and that would be due to a, um, and you know, the way in which analog recording happens and technical things that Nobody wants to know about, believe me. Um, but the truth is that I think the differences are minimal, um, between them. And, uh, the real question of, of which do I prefer is if Glenn Gould is playing the Goldbergs, that's what I prefer. And that's what I want to hear. I'm sorry. I've heard so many amazing pianists do the Goldbergs and I've heard some beautiful things happen. But when, when in the 81 version, when the aria is reprised, I just, melt and I start to cry and some of it is wrapped up in having a little bit of an of an of a connection to the project but most of it I think is just sheer musical being overwhelmed musically by it and that that's really where it's at the technical things I think if I learned anything from Glenn it was those are always second to the art how about you, Tim? Do do you have a uh, a preference strongly one way or the other? I would say I like the analog better too. For me, there was something clangorous about the sound in the original digital version, which is not there in this one. Uh, I'm going to throw a, a curveball here for a second and say that I love both of these recordings, but. If I had to choose one Glenn Gould recording of the Goldbergs, I might go with the one from the Salzburg Festival, which he recorded live in 58 or 59, which is like a weird cross between 55 and 81. And I'm enormously fond of that record. About once every couple of years, I bring it out and I sit there and say, you know, this is my favorite Glenn Gould Goldbergs, but that's that's really good. and there's a fourth one of course too that he recorded in 1954 for the CBC and I I think he did better in 55 personally. Right. Well, I and to add yet another variation to this variation of variations, 
from the same recording sessions as 1981, the soundtrack performance on Bruno Monsergeon's film is a slightly different performance because yes, some of the takes yes. that went into that are not the ones that ended up on the record. I didn't know that. Yes, that's true. That's true. It is actually true. And by the way, one reason I think, Tim, for your differentiation of the sound, particularly between the analog and digital versions, it's the difference between mature technology that's basically gotten about as far as it can go and brand new technology that still has a lot of things to be developed. Sure. The early analog to digital converters were, well, let's put it this way, they're is a world of difference between those that existed even a half a dozen years later and certain things that accomplish what's called noise shaping. The addition of a noise yeah. element called dither had not yet been developed. So there are some, some actual reasons for that, but not to get off on too much of a tangent. Um, the experience, Richard, that you described of profound impact of that recording, I've experienced it myself. I was at Glenn's memorial service at St. Paul's in Toronto, which was beyond packed. I've never seen that many people in a Toronto church before. I think it was about 3,500 people. And there were many performances, including uh, Maureen Forrester with Stephen Starrick and, you know, from the Toronto Symphony. But the end of the service was the Da Capo aria. It was not yet available in Toronto at that point. It got released in the States first, about a, a two weeks earlier. I would say the sound of sobbing in the yeah. church was it, uh, virtually as loud as the music. People were crying like babies. And you might say, well, of course, they were in that sense of immediate loss. And you know, how often, by the way, does the loss of a famous musician actually have that visceral an impact on 3,000 people. But I experienced it actually many, many years later, again, in Germany of all places. There was a Glenn Gould Film Festival. It was a held in a historic uh, movie palace from the 1920s. And uh, it lasted for a week, and it included a lot of the CBC material and Bruno's films and, you know, the film version of Idea of North by Judith Perlman. And, mm -hmm. and it was sold out pretty much from start to finish. And I'd been contacted by a woman who just described herself as, uh, she said, uh, an ordinary German hausfrau, but she loved Glenn Gould. And he spoke to her in a way that, you know, she never really experienced from anyone else. And she just wasn't even that involved in classical music. She knew it a little bit. And, you know, I'd met her um, beforehand. She'd written to me before I went to Berlin. The final film in the festival was The Goldberg Variations. And if you'll recall, at the very end, Glenn lifts his hands after the Decapo aria from the keyboard, brings them together, and bows his head. It's a very powerful moment, even if he hadn't died shortly thereafter. But this woman came up to me afterwards, and she was she just embraced me, and she was heaving with emotion. And you know, I ended up with probably the wettest lapel that I'd ever had <laughs> on a jacket. Um, the power and impact of the playing. And, it, and it, frankly, it's not only the Goldbergs. I mean, the Goldbergs are infused with special meaning because it's such a remarkable piece and because it bookended his career. But, you know, there are other moments I've often spoken of, for example, the slow movement of the Emperor Concerto in his performance with Stokowski, which I think is, 
you know, beyond Sublime and, and others as well. The slow movement from the Bach Marcello concerto that was on his. Oh, yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah. And uh, that's a recording, which, by the way, I know a musician who said that that recording saved his life, kept him from wow. committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so. I, I I would add one that I still don't understand why it's not out on recording, although it's on YouTube, which is not the one he did with Baltimore, but the one the recording of the Brandenburg Number no. Five that he oh. did in Detroit, which is fabulous. I mean, just amazing recording, and I don't know why that's not out. I'd also like to if, add one. Tim, quick just thing. one thing. They, yeah. Is that the one that you played for me where he, he makes a mistake Tiny and then he goes mistake. crazy? And then he goes just utterly crazy. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's so I, wonderful. He just brings up the tempo. That was so wonderful. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's a, it's on YouTube. If you want to hear it again, it's, it's phenomenal. I'd like to also say something to, uh, about somebody who had an awful lot, I think, to do with the understanding of Glenn Gould that we have today. And that is the woman who was responsible for me meeting him, who was a publicist at CBS Masterworks. And it was Susan Kosas's idea to put together the first Glenn Gould Film Festival. And she, she did a number of those here in the States. And then, of course, other people like the idea, but I remember talking with Susan about this and she was just saying, this is the way you really get to know Glenn. And I don't think she's always given credit for that, but it was, it was really her idea. And, and I think that helped people put together the fact that he was not only a really terrific recording artist, but that he made really interesting films too. Well, and also that his, his, analysis of music was deep and very unconventional. You know, I mean, if you hear him speaking about Bach or that series um, of shows that he did music in the 20th century, and I would say what's, I think, sobering and sad to me is if you look at those, I mean, yes, technically they're a little of their time, you know, with the columns and the, you know, rather, you know, (laughs) 19th century paraphernalias. But, you know, that was the CBC as much as Glenn, I'm pretty sure. But if you think about it, there isn't a public broadcaster in the world that would put on any five minutes of that kind of content today. The level has gotten so much less, I would say, intellectually refined. I would wonder if there's a place for that kind of thinking or things like, for example, Bernstein's Norton Lectures. The thing is, there are no longer, well, I mean, we're we're talking for a Sony project, so I won't say it's disappeared entirely. And Sony's done pretty well, it seems to me, by Glenn. Oh, very well. But the idea that he had the freedom to just make recordings in the middle of the night and any great idea he had, he could do it. I feel like I was sort of blessed in that way because I had a program on WNYC for many years and I could play anything. And it was in the city with the largest radio listenership for NPR, and they would let me do insane stuff, which I'm not sure I would let me do, like play two hours of Stockhausen without a break right before <laughs> right before All Things Considered came on. And I did that for 11 years, and nobody ever said, Tim, you've got to get more interesting stuff that'll bring your audience in. And I don't, 
I can't imagine, I, you know, college stations can still do that stuff. And that's where I started doing this material. Matter of fact, I started my first interview with Gould up at the old WKCR studios up at Columbia. But yeah, I mean, you can get away with it on those rare stations. You can probably get away with it on, you know, some kind of podcast or something. But as for a really commercial thing where they're trying to make money as well as make art, couldn't happen now. Yeah, it's it's a different world. Although yeah. I maintain steadfastly that there is an audience for everything. If you wanted to to um, you know talk for about an hour and a half about Chaucer's The Nun's Priest's Tale, there are a group of medievalists out there for that. Absolutely, and we live in a world where you can find them because we have the internet. Um, Richard, back to the actual recording session. Do you remember which variations you you produced? And if so, were there some particularly memorable moments or incidents? And also, from a pianistic point of view, did Glenn meet the image that you had in mind as this sort of, you know, person who could do no wrong virtually? <laughs> um, well, I have to admit that just before we started taping, I... I I uh, I opened up the um, booklet um, so that I could so that I could say which which one of the variations <laughs> I I was involved in, and it turns out that I was uh, that the sessions were May twelfth and thirteenth eighty one, and they were um, nineteen through twenty five, which uh, is kind of surprising. Wow, you did twenty five, yeah, twenty five. The 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 beating heart of the of the work. Oh my god. Yeah, such amazing music. It's a, it was well, it was all amazing music. I think in terms of the pianism, uh, well, I, I I had been hired by Andy Kasdan, who was Glenn's longtime producer, and I have a strong memory of Andy um, talking to me one time, reminiscing about all his sessions with Gould while he was actually still working with him. He was telling me about them, and at one point, and he says, and that he never ever practices and he said it with such anger because um because he was just so astonished at how well glenn technically could play and i thought yeah when i saw him it it really well listening to them again i hear that he made mistakes but my memory of it was that he hardly made any mistakes and in listening to a little bit of the of the recordings, the mistakes that he made are the sorts of things that are very, very subtle, and that re- again wouldn't be the sorts of things that that you would you might let them go on another record, frankly. But for Glenn, they were they were they were reasons to start the takeover again. Um, one of the things I remember, which very much amused me, and I'd been doing, I you know, I'd been doing some work as a film composer, so I knew a little bit about film and video at the time uh, that I worked with him. Was how much he was also a showman, and how much he actually took that part seriously. Some of the takes that are in the video were done specifically so that he could conduct along and we could, could see him conducting with his hand. And he did that, he did that on purpose. And other times he insisted that a take where he was telling him to be quiet, that was put on there because visually it was much more um, dramatic and enjoyable for the audience. He very much cared about his audience. 
Although, of course, like any artist worth his salt, he, of course, would say that he never did. The, the truth is, though, that he, that I think that it was because of all this, because he knew he, you were getting a full package. I think that's one of the reasons why we're still talking about him now. We still love him. And I think that, uh, that at the same time that intellectually, um, and musically and structurally, uh, his ideas were at a level that that most of us can't imagine. There was also a part of him that really wanted to connect and connect on a very direct way. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's true in his playing too. And I, yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that we, I think that's why we talk about him because he, he both didn't compromise and yet he let you in in a, in a very unusual way. Does that make sense to anybody? Totally. Totally. Beautifully said. I have a question for both of you. And I'm not remotely trying to start trouble here. Oh, go right ahead. Make some trouble. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious about it. You know, Richard, you and I were talking about where Glenn makes that tiny little mistake in the Brandenburg Concerto First Movement and just goes nuts in the condensa, just playing it wildly. He's obviously pained and angry, although he's still making glorious music. What would Glenn think? Think of us all getting together to talk about his outtakes. You know, on, on, the, <laughs> on, the, on the one hand, he always used to say, and this is the reason I think he would have loved the internet so much, that he'd like to do something in several different versions, say a fast first movement, then a version of the first movement played very slowly. And, and so you could mix and match. But here we are talking about all the things that all the people making this recording, including Glenn and Bruno and you and Sam Carter. And now we're listening to Glenn goofing up, which he always thought showed some kind of sadism on the part of the audience. <laughs> um, I, can I take a stab at that if you don't yeah, mind? Yeah, please, please. Um, That's why I'm asking. <laughs> I think that Glenn would love to do that, except what he would do is carefully record all the outtakes with a specific error in mind so that he would have a completely controlled experience. In other words, it would be an impression of art. To, uh, uh, he would make his own outtakes and he would do it consciously rather than have them be slips. And, and just like he did with you, Tim, you know, where he took all your things and he added a few jokes and he made it, he would create, he would create art out of it. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't simply be outtakes. How interesting. That's yeah. wonderful. And I, I take him at his word that, um, if he believed that technology would liberate people to construct the version of a, you know, a particular sonata, or in this case, the Goldbergs that they wanted to hear, that he would probably have said, Great, have at it. You know, get you know, load these takes into into your computer, edit the version you want to hear. You know, now how much latitude in Tempe? Because I haven't heard all the takes yet. You know, how how experimental he was, like how much variation in the variations he gave people to play with. My sense is that because he developed this tempo relationship idea, that probably the like you don't have one you know particular takes that are miles miles different than than the others. Am I am I right in that? 
Yeah, my my recollect Tim, I don't know, maybe you can jump in on this, but my recollection is that he was going for performance, um, that he wasn't going for interpretation, that he had locked in, that he knew what he wanted to play in terms of tempo and in terms of how the piece would be phrased and articulated. Um he was he was trying to um get down what he already had in his mind very clearly. I would certainly agree with that, but I would make one addition which is that he wanted to get it all down in his mind for this particular performance. Yes, agreed. Because I think you could have come to Glenn two weeks later and saying, well, we like that recording, but now we'd like to try a brisker one. I bet Glenn would have jumped on. Yeah, I think, I think, I think for him, music was, he was, he was fascinated by recording, but he didn't think of it as a frozen yeah. sort of an art form. It was always something that had to be, uh, you know, it was always something that could be futzed with, that could be played with, that could be improved. I was reminded in the Greek, when you're talking about the Greek, um, if we're, I think we're talking about the same record, the one where he played with, uh, distance. No, that's Sibelius. That's the Sibelius recording. Where he has mics, where he has mics all over the studio and he fades in as you do in a film. You'll hear the beginning of it from far away and then it's all up in the piano. It, it's very strange. But, but, it, but again, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a new thought about how to make records. And I, but he didn't pursue that much further, even though it was a very interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that again, just going further, I, th- I think today he would be enthralled and fascinated in trying to push the technology as far as it could go, whether or not he would be involved with say MIDI and, or the disc clavier or things like that. I don't know. It's possible. He approached it from the standpoint of somebody who was trained classically and trained as a um, quote unquote classical musician. So um, it's not like he's a, it's not like he's a guy who's very, uh, it's not like he's going to be doing samples. I would doubt it, but he certainly would have found a very, very interesting approach towards the technology we have now. Something very different. Well, you know, one, one of the, uh, the more adventurous projects that has emerged in recent years, this one that we've had a little involvement with at the foundation is something called Dear Glenn. I don't know if you're familiar with Dear Glenn, but essentially the, um, folks at Yamaha in Japan, um, hired some computer scientist genius to employ AI and machine learning to see if it could learn the key elements of the style of an interpreter with the ability to then basically apply that to other repertoire. And of course, who would they choose but Glenn? And we thought it was a very interesting experiment. And so they basically had dear Glenn learn hundreds and hundreds of hours of you know his live performances, his broadcast work, his commercial recordings, everything that they could get their hands on. And then they created a program that would essentially power a disc clavier piano, a self-playing computer-driven piano. And the theory behind Dear Glenn is that it can play anything in Glenn Gould's style, including repertoire that he never recorded in his lifetime. I was at the world premiere of it, and I would say that it was fairly persuasive. I say that guardedly because I love the people who are working on the project. I don't think it's perfect yet, but I think it's fascinating for those who really want to hear Chopin Waltz's Ella Glenn, or let's say Schumann's <laughs> Kindersainen, or any of the other repertoire that he detested, it theoretically can do it. 
Well, the problem there is, you know, you've got things like the Mozart Kerschel 330, which he originally plays in sort of traditional, tidy, Giza King type Mozart. And then the second time, he just races through it, sort of hammering all the keys. So which one of those would be Dear Glenn? That's a very good question. And all I can say is, I haven't had a conversation with the AI to figure out which one he chose. By the way, you know, at the risk of getting people very, very angry, I find (laughs) a lot of Glenn's Mozart bracing and exciting and interesting. And the people who make the blanket condemnation because it is so different and so ungraceful in their way of thinking, so lacking in Gemütlichkeit, I say basically stick it. <laughs> yeah, well, that that that's legitimate. Although although with the Mozart sonatas, you do have Glenn saying he didn't like them very much. That's true. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I don't know a better performance of Kershaw four ninety one than the you know the great concerto than the one he did. I mean, right. it's glorious Mozart playing. Just. Yeah. Beyond glorious Mozart playing. Yeah. The thing that I remember from those Mozart sonatas is the 545, where he plays it exactly backwards. Yeah. Um, you know, where he, where he has the, um, what is it? One, one hand is completely staccato. The other hand is completely legato. And it's not the one that you would think would be staccato. And he's got them reversed. And you go, okay, this is a guy who really hates this music. (laughs) I thought, and I thought, but he's doing the best he can to make it interesting to himself and to others. Right. You, you, you know, the one recording of him, his that I really have to say, it's so obvious he hated the music is the one of the Chopin B minor sonata, which is just <laughs> dreadful. It is, in, in, in my opinion. And, and Glenn even would say, well, I did my worst by it. Um, and, and it really makes you, uh, on the other hand, you know, that was not a recording that was issued during his lifetime. So I think that was something somebody found later. Say, hey, Glenn Gould plays Chopin. Let's bring it out. Right. You know, and of course, I'm sure it sold a lot. And it is interesting in its own sort of really weird way. Well, you know, I if I can add to that list, and this was commercially released, you know, one that I really find have a lot of problems with is his appassionata sonata. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's literally a, I'm going to show you why this music stinks. By yeah, emphasizing yeah. all of the really rotten things about it. I actually, you know, wanted to to veer off into a different direction and just talk a little bit about paradoxes. Because I, I find Gould in some ways a bit of a paradoxical figure. You know, he is someone who embraced modernity and technology and mm-hmm. 20th century music, a lot of it, including, of course, dodecaphony. But I also think of him as a very romantic figure, someone who, you know, in terms of art and its potential to generate a state of wonder, ecstasis, um, the ennobling character of music. I mean, I'm very struck. I don't know why this one tiny phrase has always stuck in my mind, but in the, I think it was the the fantasy that he recorded, the little drama where he played all his different characters um, with uh, Margaret Pachu on his silver anniversary. And they asked him why he had never recorded any Scarlatti. And I think he said, there is more spiritual nourishment 
in the C, the prelude in C from book one of the Well-Tempered Clavier than in all 575 Scarlatti sonatas. Mm-hmm. And that word spiritual nourishment just, you know, resonated. Or the, the moment in Glenn Gould's Toronto, when he remembers the, that phrase, give us, O Lord, the peace that this world cannot give. And you think this is very much a man whose inner life has roots in the 19th century, as well as his embrace of the 20th. Care to comment on that, especially you know, the paradox that he recorded so little romantic music? Well, I was going to say that Glenn was in some ways a very traditional he was a very traditional and kind of blue-nosed Canadian Anglican of his time and place. It's strange. He, he's like a number of people who are around at that point. Um, when it came to their art, they were very much out there and doing all sorts of new material. And yet, I, I mean, a, a, a little bit like, say, somebody like T.S. Eliot, who was very much a sort of Anglican churchman and and had some views, which I don't think we necessarily like very much, but um, was also way out there exploring unusual things. And I don't think Glenn had Eliot's prejudices, but he did have a great deal of the same kind of stern churchman, although I don't think he ever went to church. So, But he was raised very much in that time and place. And I think that's just the way he was. You read the novels of that time from Canada, the Hugh McLennan stu- stuff, and it's all very much the same way. It was very proper, very sober. And yet, you know, when he sat down to do something new, he did something very new. Uh, I I don't know. Um, I, I I have um, the I have a prejudice that's that's typical of many modern composers of my generation, which is that I don't know very much about romantic music or romanticism, and um, nothing has changed over the years that made me want to, to know more. Frankly, <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, uh, I've always loved music. Uh, around the time of Bach and before, and then it starts to taper off. Then I start to get interested again around Debussy. So I can't, I can't respond to how Glenn is a romantic, but I can say that what I hear in him and, and what I think about him is a tremendous mystical love of transcendence, a desire to transcend the prosaic and the, um, the you know, the ordinary, the mundane. The, there's nothing mundane in, an, in, in a millisecond of his playing. And I think that that's really what he was going for. I think you can look at it two ways, one of which is a kind of, um, you know, rejection of, of the way things are. But I, but I don't think that that's where Glenn was. I think that Glenn, Glenn was in a different place and he was trying to bring us there. And I think that that was really what he was trying to do. Is that romantic? I don't know. I don't care. But what I do know is that it's, that, it, that it was very beautiful. And it's something that even from the first moment that I heard his music, his music making, that I understood instinctively. If you bring up romanticism, I would say he was sort of a late Richard Strauss type romantic, which is right. also very neoclassical. It's interesting that he hated Stravinsky so much after after Firebird and to some extent Petrushka, but 
after that, he he just felt no connection to it, which you you might have thought he would. But of course, he did care a great deal about Schoenberg, Schoenberg. and Webern and Berg. It's it's so hard to say. And what what we see as romantic now, or what we see as being avant garde now, I mean, it can change so much, Richard. I don't remember if you knew Virgil Thompson at all. No, I never met him. He was sort of fascinating. When I used to teach, you know, he wrote Four Saints and Three Acts with Gertrude Stein in 1928. That's also the time Ernst Krennic was writing the Johnny Spielt Auf, which was a jazz opera dissonant throughout. And I used to play these recordings to my class. and. When Four Saints was first heard, everybody thought it was terribly, terribly conservative, at least musically speaking, and Krennic was considered from another world. And if you play it to students nowadays, or even for the last 20, 30 years, you'll get the exact opposite response Mm. because they will find the Thompson-Stein much more avant-garde, much more far out. Um, than the Krennic, which was at that time considered absolutely radical. And Virgil was considered to be somebody who just, you know, was playing with chord sequences. Right. I mean, even Strauss, you know, in 1890, he was considered to be a flaming radical. And, you know, by the time he died, he was considered to be a man of the past. Well, Electra, in my opinion, is the great and the most singularly shocking work of musical modernism from the turn of the century. I mean, Pierrot and Rite of Spring have been absorbed, but if you see a good Electra, you're going to be shocked silly. So why do you think, why do you think Glenn, um, and this is actually for both of you, I'm just curious, why do you think Glenn had such a fascination with Schoenberg and Webern and not with Stravinsky? What do you think accounts for that? I think he found Stravinsky icy. Mm -hmm. He did not find him particularly musical. It did not hit with him. Um, You know, uh, he adored Sibelius and especially things like the Fourth Symphony. And of course, Sibelius was considered very old hat now. But man, if you play the Symphony Number 4 for a group of people who don't know it, they won't have any idea when it was written they won't have any idea what it can possibly be about. And it's it's sort of fascinating that way. I think that there are a few things about Schoenberg particularly that may have appealed to Glenn. First of all, the idea that he was faced with a what he may have seen as an increasingly chaotic world and you know, essentially tried to find a way of bringing order out of that chaos through the development of the, the tone row. He was a structuralist. Gould always said, you know, in one way or another, music that is contrapuntal in some respects is the most appealing to me. So the architectural aspect of Schoenberg. But I think also the thing that he loved about Strauss is also true of Schoenberg, which is that Schoenberg didn't see himself as a radical who was essentially chopping the heads off of off of the aristocrats in the style of the French Revolution, but rather someone who was part of a tradition who is helping it evolve to its next logical manifestation. And I know that Schoenberg believed that he was in the lineage of Bach and Beethoven, not you know someone who is repudiating them. And I think that that was something that Gould likewise found 
very estimable in, in Strauss's music. It, it's a kinship that maybe they wouldn't have acknowledged themselves, but um, I think it would have would have been something that that it would be a common element that Gould appreciated. Fascinating. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. I have to ask because you spent those days in Toronto with Glenn. Did you ever hear him do one of his uh, his opera performances with him basically converting the entire orchestra and some of the vocal parts into the, into the the ten fingers of his hands? Well, the one of the things I deeply regret is I've never been a late night person. Um, nowadays I go to bed pretty much when the sun goes down, but back then we recorded that Goldberg thing all night and I took a, a very short bathroom break. And then I heard, um, uh, I heard him playing and I'm so tired. I mean, I'm, I'm just feeling pins and needles everywhere and I just want to go to bed anywhere. Point me to the couch. I'll be asleep in a second. And he's playing for me. And he played, the, the thing he played that was longest was the the sisters duet from Electra. And he played it very beautifully. And of course, he sang along and he conducted along. And he, it was rather like what he did with Humphrey Burton for that, that, that terrific film. Um, but, and then he played the opening... Uh, sextet from Capriccio. And then he played a great deal of the um, second movement of the Beethoven B flat, which was his favorite of the five concertos of Beethoven. And then he played just a little bit of, I think it's variation 18 or 19. I I forget which one it is. It's, It's used in Slaughterhouse five as well. And it's getting to be late in the afternoon. So my memory is going but he played about maybe 30 seconds of that. And then he just stopped and he says, I can't possibly play this music if I don't have my chair. And that was the end of the concert. <laughs> but but it, was, it was about 10, 15 minutes. I'm sitting there like, oh, please wake up. Please, please, please wake up. And I remember it happened. And I remember things that I was very impressed by, but not very much more. I was spent. Nonetheless, I both... Pity you and envy you. That was uh, something that would have been a, uh, a wonder to behold. I met some people who, for a while, lived in the apartment below his. And apparently, you know, they heard his practicing all the time and considered themselves very lucky. And I basically felt like shaking them and saying, a pair of boundary mics taped to your ceilings <laughs> and a recorder, you know, and we would have had a, a tremendous archive. Well, this, this was out at the Inn on the Park. So he was no longer disturbing the neighbors. He had this studio in the most remote possible part of the park. It was like following a maze to get to it. You know, Richard, you and I are probably just about the youngest people in the world who heard Glenn play. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, no, um, I I remember actually, um, I think also, I think I remember talking to you, I think um, it must, I guess it was the day after you came back from, from that thing. You were so excited by that interview, but finally meeting him. It was great. 
and you were just so so happy and then i remember i think i i think we both had a concert at bam to go to and that's when yeah the steve reich concert was that what it was yeah it was the it was the premiere of the vermont counterpoint and i'd been told october 1st and i've been told that afternoon yeah and and you told me earlier that you actually have a recording of me calling you about that i do I saved all my answer tapes in those days. Wow. You had called me earlier in the afternoon, but then we ran into each other that night. Right, at the concert. Yeah. And yeah, and I just remember you crying and me crying, oh, and it horrible. was just it's incredible. time i don't think we knew very much at least i didn't know very much about his about his problems and all i knew was that this was the current recording it wasn't the last recording it wasn't a testament it was just the next recording and i think he recorded what was it haydn after that haydn sonatas uh, no he recorded some brahms and then he also recorded the siegfried idol right and his strauss his strauss piano album was actually his very, very last. Which is a beautiful record. Was that the Siegfried on piano or Siegfried, Siegfried with the, the orchestra. orchestra? The orchestra. Yeah, you played that for me. Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. It was strange, you know, when, when I found out that he had died, the recording I put on to sort of settle myself and just be the first thing I heard knowing he was no longer here was the Brahms Intermezzos album, which is one of his very greatest records. I don't think the later Brahms record is all that great, but the the one he made about 1960 of the Brahms Intermezzi is simply gorgeous. And then Donald Henahan and the Times wrote something about how bizarre it was and ended his article something like, rest in peace, Glenn Gould, you never have to see another face another live audience. And I remember just thinking, I remember just thinking, I hate my profession and deciding I wasn't <laughs> going to be Don Hanahan under any circumstances. <laughs> well, I, I seem to recall an interview. It might've actually been somewhere in on CBC radio, or it might've been in the, um, the dialogue, Glenn Gould interviews, Glenn Gould about Glenn Gould, where the interlocutor asked him if he had ever considered being a critic. And he said, I'm sorry, but I do have some moral standards. <laughs> Which is odd because he actually did occasionally write record reviews for Gramophone. He sure did. I have a story about when he died. A friend and actually a colleague, a member of our board of directors at the foundation, used to work quite a bit uh, with Victor Borga, especially acting as a kind of a show producer when he came to Toronto. And as it happened, Victor Borga was playing a concert in Toronto. It was either the day that Glenn died or the day of his memorial service. And he, you know, came into town as one does. He didn't really know that there was this going on. It was, must have been the memorial service because he would have known about his death. And um, he, you know, went out, did all of his funny stuff, no laughs. And uh, 
he came back and said to my board member, who's also a Glenn, what's wrong? Who died? And, you know, Glenn said, well, Glenn Gould died. Oh, and literally like the entire audience, they, they were not in a mood to laugh about anything. Yeah. I would have canceled going to see Victor Borg if that had been the case. <laughs> but, um, but that sort of stuff happens sometimes, and it's very strange. Yeah. This has been a, a fabulous conversation, I have to say, and, and we could go on and on. I want to leave the final words to you. So I already prepared you for this, but one of the things that, um, I mean, look, there have been many great pianists. There have been, and their performances are moving and powerful, whether you're a Courtauld man, a Gieseking man, a Horowitz man, or woman, an Argerish devotee. But there's something about Gould that, you know, I mean, and among any of the legendary classical musicians, you can go back through all of them. And believe me, I revere them. But I have never encountered a phenomenon like the posthumous life of Glenn Gould, the emotional hold that he has on many people and the way that he has become such a presence in their lives and remains so. And this may be the question that he never wanted to answer about how he played like that, you know, the centipede question, like, how do you move all those legs in such perfect sequence? I don't want to think about it or I won't be able to do it anymore. But what is your feeling about why Gould has become such a singular presence? What is the, the nature of the mystique? And what is it that sets him apart from all these other extraordinary artists? Well, I would say a number of things. Um, I would say, number one, Glenn sort of planned it this way. Glenn thought that just going out and playing the same piece that he maybe didn't even like very much again and again and again. And he talked about how bits of business would creep into all of his later performances when he was doing that and he didn't like it. So he was thinking about the future. And I think there was that. I think there's a fact that there is a, I would say, uh, an introversion in a lot of the the way he plays, it's it's not usually unless he's doing something like the Prokofiev Seventh. It's not just showing off and being real bang bang bang. You know, he he always seems more at home in things like, um, well, you you mentioned the Bach Marcello Adagio and what a glorious recording that is. And then I think also you have to say this. Uh, well, well, two more things. No, uh, he was also inaccessible. Um, he was not somebody you could just go here and see or call up and hang around. He was kind of like a, a, a Thomas Pinchon or a Bobby Fisher, who was this mysterious person who was there, but also was not there. And then he was also, and I mean, and this is important. He was, especially as a young man, very, very beautiful. And, you know, he was somebody who would inspire crushes all the way across, intellectual crushes, you know, romance crushes, all I think he'd try to squash those out as quickly as he could. He was he was the sort of person around you around whom you could kind of build a fantasy world and yet he reached in and he touched you. 
I don't, I don't know if I can add anything very much to that. Um, other than to say that, um, I think that what he did was he had an extraordinary physical coordination and technique, um, that was simply mind blowing. And unlike many people with that kind of virtuosity, he had a brain that was equally mind blowing to go along with it. And he was smart enough to know that the virtuosity was that, that the physical coordination was a tool to, to, and his brain in a certain sort of way was a tool to get at something other, something that's very hard to define, very hard to articulate, something that they don't, they certainly wouldn't let you talk about in a paper in my music theory classes, but something that, that kind of goes beyond, beyond the notes, beyond the, beyond the performance. And you suddenly, if you're listening to that, to those performances, the way in which he approaches it, it just transports you. And I think that that experience is the core of uh, the beginning of why we do that. Then on top of that, the things that Tim just talked about, um, he, he was physically beautiful. He was also um, a very compelling character. Um, there was something adorable about his quirks rather than irritating and obnoxious. So here you had like um, the perfect mixture of somebody who was undoubtedly a genius, undoubtedly heavily focused on his art, and yet, paradoxically, to, to use your, your term, Brian, paradoxically, there was something very human about him, you know, um, glamorous, um, inviting, friendly. I think what was so shocking to me about him was how friendly he was. He was a nice man, you know. I'm sure not all the time. I mean, the demands on him must have been crazy, but he was a nice man. I'm going to add one more thing, and this is not in any way a put down. He also was well aware of the Glenn Gould myth. And I don't mean that exactly as anything false, but the idea of, you know, when he wanted to record the Pathetique and the Appassionata, and I forget what else is on Moonlight, I think, Moonlight. is on that album. And, you know, that picture of him looking like the gloomy genius of the North. Well, that was actually taken the backyard of the in on the park. So it was right in the heart of Toronto, but it looks like he's just gone through, you know, some kind of extraordinary experience and he's been found and he knew how to play this. And I, that, there's nothing at all wrong with that. But, you know, you add those things together, you got a pretty potent brew. Yeah, I think that that's true. I really do. That's wonderful. Well, I'm going to break the cardinal rule of interviewing and give myself the last word, my own thoughts on on why. Please. And I do this as a lay person. I'm not really a lay person, but I'm not a professional musician, and I'm certainly not a composer. But I would say, um, and I think it, it goes back to some points that you raised, Tim, about you know some of the, the extraordinary qualities of mind that Gould had, that there is in his playing an extreme level of concentration and focus. It's uh, demonstrated in the extraordinary voice leading that his um, his contrapuntal performances, his Bach particularly, um, brings the ability to make each line of a fugue stand out as though you could ignore the other two and just hear it in complete isolation. And that focus and intensity draws the listener in in a very 
powerful way into that world of abstract structures that become suddenly not abstract, that become kind of a different world that envelops you and gives you a glimpse of a kind of a spiritual vision, again, to use a slightly mystical term, a spiritual vision that is at the heart of what music is supposed to 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 give to us. And I think that that quality of basically being able to make the entire rest of the world go away to draw you into that vision is something that is very, very rare. So there's my two cents. Bravo. More than two cents. That's perfect. Well, gentlemen, um, we should do another one of these sometime soon, but it is the 90th birthday. And I'm sure that, you know, wherever he is, if he is anywhere, I hope that uh, there's some appreciation that uh, people still love what he does and did and what he gave us. And so this one's for you, Glenn, and for the legions of fans all over the world who have been touched by your music. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim and Richard, for joining me for this. Thank you. It was a joy. Real pleasure. Thanks so much, Brian. Well, friends, that brings to a close our conversation with Tim Page and Richard Einhorn. And I hope it filled you all with a an urge to check out the new box set of the complete recorded takes of Glenn Gould's 1981 Goldberg Variations. I found it uh, absolutely a fascinating insight into Glenn Gould's way of working, his attitude towards music, and his relationship with our guests. If you're interested in keeping up with the Gold Standard podcast and more work from the Foundation, be sure to follow us across social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Glenn Gould Foundation. And remember, the Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to continue bringing inspiring stories to life. Please consider giving by visiting our website, glenngould.ca. We have a special announcement for you. This week, on Glenn Gould's 90th birthday, an all-star international jury assembled by the Glenn Gould Foundation announced the artist they had chosen to be the 14th laureate of the $100,000 Glenn Gould Prize. We are absolutely delighted that they named the great Venezuelan conductor and activist Gustavo Dudamel as our new laureate. Didamel is a product of El Sistema, the program of intensive free music education for children. He is the first laureate to have won both the Glenn Gould Protégé Prize, conferred upon him by uh, Maestro José Antonio Abreu, as well as the Glenn Gould Prize itself. Gustavo Dudamel burst on the musical scene like a blazing comet and has been acclaimed for his work as music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic and also recently became artistic director of the Paris Opera. Most importantly, Dudamel is a great humanitarian who has dedicated passion and energy to bringing the transformative power of music into the lives of disadvantaged children and youth through programs like the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, uh, his own foundation, and through the El Sistema movement worldwide. Stay tuned, because in the coming months, we are going to reveal our plans to celebrate Dudamel and announce his protege prize winner. Till then. <laughs>